Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could, would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Cause we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 270. So I'm going to play something for you that I'm very proud of, something I put together right after I finished How Minds Change, the book that came out a year ago. That is currently printed on paper and available on shelves and also as an audiobook that I read out loud. And it was also fortunately recorded by a sound engineer when I did that. I'm recording this in October of 2023 as I'm on the road giving lectures on this book tour about how minds change. I'm headed to uh, Montreal right after this. I just got back from Denver and then I'm going to New York and Toronto and Madison, Wisconsin and NASA's Goddard Space Center, where I will dramatically be pressing buttons and pretending I am making contact with intelligent life circling a moon of Jupiter. And then on from there to places like Tel Aviv. Uh, if you'd like me to come speak at your institution, just email me. But this episode is going to be about something that I did right after writing that book. I wanted to explore what does genius really mean and how come it's so hard to get an answer to that question. And I was very lucky because this audio documentary and podcast series and deep dive audio learning service called Himalaya reached out to me and asked about two years ago if I had any book ideas that I'd yet to pursue. And I said, oh yeah, I have this fascination with the word genius and the very idea of defining that word or any word and articulating the ineffable and meaning itself and applying all that stuff to communication and articulation and taxonification and quantification and the struggles we have to do all that when it comes to human potential and human uniqueness and intelligence and creativity and consciousness and so on. And they said, great, go make a series about it. And I did. And I will take all of that and it will become this book that will take all of what I did for them and add about 4,000% more material like uh, I just recently embedded myself with eugenicists and I've been visiting things like genius generating schools and so on. So all of that on top of what you can find over at Himalaya is going to be the book. And over there at Himalaya, it's, it's a seven hour documentary. I have a link to it in the show notes. And instead of talking more about it, I'm just going to hit play and that will be this episode. Following this though, there will be new episodes about all sorts of stuff like cascades and something called an undebate, the possibility of a fungal apocalypse, you know, like the last of us talk to experts on that. Mental health, the myth of the self, bisexuality, complexity science, better science communication in a crisis, intellectual humility, the overuse of the exclamation point in emails, and lots, lots more. But right now, let's listen to this first episode of that series. Over there, it was called Exploring Genius. I'm still not quite sure what the title of the book will be, but 
I am looking forward to sharing all of that with you soon. For now, pressing play. Himalaya. My name is David McGraney, and this is a series. This is the first episode of a show about genius. I'm a science journalist, and I have this question that I've wondered for a long time. What does that word mean exactly? Genius. Okay, what do you want what do you want to do this out? I'm gonna play Watch from It's Broken by Brands, it's a dance. Um what do you <laughs> what do you want to do that at? Um downstairs. Okay, that's what I thought you were gonna say. <laughs> I'm coming. Down here! No, I'm coming, I'm coming. That's Juliette Leong, and she's asking me to go down into her playroom, her immense laboratory of experiments and interests to hear her okay hold on play some violin all right what's that records the sound after arriving and meeting her very nice and extremely hospitable parents willa and jonathan i spent the entire day with juliet Playing with her toys. What did you say this was? This is magnets. Magnets? Okay, cool, cool, cool. You can make a circle with these. Playing with her pet chicken, Goldie. You had some chickens? Yeah, I had 12. Oh my god, there's a chicken. Is. Does the chicken have a name? Yep, Goldie. Oh, that's a pretty good chicken. Hey. Hey, Gordy. Eats bugs. Where are you going, Gordy? You mean Gordy? Gordy. Goldie. Goldie, got it. She's really silly. You're a silly chicken, Goldie. Cheering her on while she jumped on her indoor trampoline. I jump on the tra- trampoline a lot, every day. Every day? Yes. That's pretty cool. I wish I had an indoor trampoline. Looking at her absolutely incredible paintings. Uh, who made these paintings? I did. You made these paintings? Yeah, I painted it. Wow. Seriously, her paintings are unbelievable, and they're all over the house. Every corner, every wall, on the floor, on the mantel, lightning strikes, and frozen ponds, and musical instruments. And we eventually made our way down into her playroom, which, again, is incredible. Down here! I'm coming, I'm coming! It's like a mad scientist laboratory for a very little girl, where she showed me a robot vehicle she had created that you could remote control which looked like it was made out of wood and spare electronic parts that made no sense to me. I love it. And this is the control. Mm Mm-hmm. Can it work? Oh, there are no batteries inside. Yeah. She also gave me a really cool smushy flower sticker. Still on my phone. Oh, that's so cool. Give me a flower sticker. Where are you going to put it? Stick it right there. Thank you. (laughs) Funny. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) But it was down here that we really connected because she loves dinosaurs, and mm, so do I. I got toy dinosaurs. Oh, let's see a toy dinosaur. What's this? This is the Brachiosaurus. Mm-hmm. I also got a baby Brachiosaurus. This is my baby Brachiosaurus. Oh, it's a teeny, teeny, teeny. I know. <laughs> and this is my baby, another baby. What's your favorite dinosaur? My favorite dinosaur is the T-Rex. I see. I hear you. I like Stegosaurus myself. 
That's my favorite dinosaur. Listen, you know about dinosaurs too? I know a little bit. I know almost all of the species. Oh yeah? Which, uh, what do you think of Stegosaurus? A Stegosaurus has 23 spikes, 25 spikes, mm -hmm. and it has that... I wanted to meet Juliet because a few months ago, she was formally tested by a team of psychologists who measured her IQ. And at four years old, they scored her at 155. <laughs> and, then, and then also the Stegosaurus has a, a side spike. 155. And they say it could be perhaps higher. She scored higher on some measures within the IQ test. Either way, it puts her in the 99.9 percentile of IQs. In fact, by some measures, that's the ceiling. Above 155, it's hard to determine exactly what a person's IQ really is. But I wanted to meet Juliet not solely because she has one of the highest IQs ever recorded, especially now as a five-year-old. She just had her birthday. But because she is a genius, which I would later learn isn't necessarily something an IQ test can measure, but it is apparent just after a few minutes bouncing around Juliet's world, she is a genius. And a five-year-old. Ah, my stepdad! <laughs> but, also, she's a genius. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Juliet would not be the only genius I would meet. Later, I would spend time with people whose IQs were all above 150, some even in the high 180s. And one, who you will meet at the end of our journey together, has the highest IQ ever recorded for a man. And his IQ has been recorded several times. So this music, that's Tchaikovsky. He, unfortunately, was unavailable for interview, but I did get to spend time with people like flaming axe juggler and banjo instructor Bob Bledsoe. Just this is taking it out of me. That's him, juggling flaming axes in his driveway. Yeah! <laughs> he did that in flip-flops, by the way. It was terrifying. I also met with stand-up comedian Jessica and Sarah. She runs the website prettygay.net, and she does LGBT stand-up comedy. And her IQ is way up there. I moved to L.A. 13 years ago, and I love L.A., but L.A. can be very, very hard on a woman's body image. Am I right, what it is? Yeah. Um, I'm basically, I'm always on a diet, and I'm, I know that I'm at goal weight when I appear to have been recently hospitalized. <laughs> so people come up to me, and they'll be like, have you been sick? And I'm like, no, but thank you. Jessica's also getting her PhD right now in psychology. I also spent the day with 
legendary music producer and the man upon whom they based Austin Powers, Peter Asher. Something I could not help but notice looking through your entire history is, and just just when we first walked in the door, you said you were friends with Rob Williams and Steve Martin. You've been mm -hmm. in the midst of people like um, Courtney Love. There's uh, Hans Zimmer doing his thing right across the way. Mm -hmm. You just in the midst of nothing but what people would refer to as genius. I suppose um, that's true. It's, it's, it's a stroke of good fortune, yeah, I suppose. It's, it's, it's both. Has it changed your perspective in any way about when you just walk through the world itself and have to hang out with normals? No, not that I, I don't consciously make that distinction. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, our interview was interrupted a few times by Hans Zimmer recording the soundtrack for Dune, which is happening right across from Asher's office because Asher produced several of his albums. And there's so many others. There's linguist, lawyer, and author, Sarah Condor. My parents wanted to know when I was growing up, they kind of thought I had a high IQ. So they had me tested when I was very small. She shared her life story with me. And if it wasn't coming out of her mouth, I don't think you would believe it. When I was uh, 14, I was drafted on the Olympic team, swimming. And I uh, just didn't like the country. I didn't like the people and I didn't like communism. I just tried to run away. I was 16 and um, I got caught on the border. I was uh, uh, imprisoned by the KGB. I was cross-interrogated, stripped naked. You know, it was quite a shock. I was only 17 years old. And, and so then I escaped. I got a work permit. I worked in England on a farm, speaking berries on a farm. And I traveled around England, around Europe. I hitchhiked for two years around Europe. I enrolled at three universities and uh, it was kind of boring for me. I didn't want to sit at the lectures. So I always came only for the exams. Many of these geniuses, these people with IQs that are just off the charts, they led lives up to the point that I met them like Sarah Condors, you just can't believe all of the things that they've gotten into, become fascinated with, become obsessed with, dived to the bottom of, and then explored until they were bored and moved on to something else. And they often have these life stories where the thing that made them special wasn't something they discovered quickly. They could learn things quickly, they could make sense of things quickly, but as children, well, Here's one of my favorite examples, Lee Joyner. If you need an alien or a monster or you need someone to have some sort of injury applied to their face and you don't want to go with CGI, Lee Joyner is the one you go to. He's one of the best practical special effects artists in the world. He's an incredible artist, has his own studio. But as he told me... I was a uh, troublesome child. Um, <laughs> had a lot of problems in school. Uh, you know, had a lot of uh, social issues with other kids. I was, I, I think I kind of have a little bit of oppos oppositional defiance disorder because I wouldn't do my homework. I wouldn't listen to my teachers. I would think, you know, that having to memorize things wasn't true learning. Mm. I needed to understand it and I needed to be able to discuss it and doing things by rote, you know, like memorizing dates. So I would refuse a lot of things. I mean, I, you know, was in the honors um system and and you know made pretty good grades uh and then got in the ap program and then got a scholarship and so on but 
most of my friends I couldn't relate to. Um, I would be into things that they weren't interested in. And um, so I ended up reading a lot. These are all themes that we will return to again and again. Among many others, you will meet from Shakespearean actors to musical savants, even to experts who research this sort of thing. And I spent time with all these incredible individuals in an attempt to answer a question that I've been pondering for years. What does that word, genius, really mean? Because as you will hear from experts in intelligence, IQ, creativity, giftedness, and even from the people at Mensa, the organization for people whose IQs are above 130, of which Juliet is one of the youngest members, there's no clear definition of that word, genius. In fact, here's the historian Darren McMahon, who literally wrote the book on genius titled Divine Fury, in which he traced the entire history of that word and the idea behind it, going all the way back to the Romans. I mean, the truth is, I don't believe in genius. Uh, genius to me is not something that's in the fabric of the universe. Genius is simply a label that we use uh, and we put on people of exceptional uh, talent, creativity, ability, and so on and so forth. Um, and so I'm interested in how people apply it. How do we apply it? Well, genius, according to McMahon, is a placeholder term, a word we all know and use and feel like we understand, but it doesn't cleanly map onto anything that is easily defined. When we do use it, even as scientists or historians or journalists, it's always an attempt to articulate the ineffable, the feeling we get when a five-year-old plays the violin or when a wild-haired physicist explains space-time as best he can. Followed from the special theory of relativity that mass and energy are food, are but different manifestations of the same thing. This question, what does that word, genius, really mean, slipped into my mind and would not leave after I read about one of the most famous studies in all of psychology, Terman's termite study. And that is where we're going to begin this whole adventure. very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy. In 1921, Dr. Lewis M. Terman was a psychologist at Stanford University, and following in the footsteps of Galton and Binet and other researchers who were, in a word, problematic in ways that you will learn about later, he helped develop the predecessor of the modern IQ test. Now, back then, the purpose of the test was to determine who was not a genius. More specifically, it was a sorting mechanism to figure out who was fit for public schooling or who wasn't. It's complicated. We'll get into it. But the thing that I want you to know right now, this bird's eye view of this, is that Terman thought, what if instead of looking at people who perform below average, science could use the test to study people who scored above average? There was this mad pursuit at the time to try to find genius to quantify it. So with several assistants, he searched the records of the public schools in California for children with IQs above 135. He set aside about 1,500 students. He called them his termites. Get it? 
termins, termites, and then followed their lives for the rest of his. And they were all pretty successful. They got good jobs, stuff like that, but none achieved anything of note. However, two of the boys who didn't have genius IQs and were excluded because of it went on to win separately, not working together, decades apart, the Nobel Prize in Physics. Here's Darren McMahon again. <laughs> so Lewis Turbin um, has this uh, you know, weaponized version of the IQ exam, and he figures, well, let's put this to work. Uh, and he, uh, he does just that by, um, by administering uh, the, the, the test to large numbers of, of, of school children in the, the kind of greater San Francisco area. Um, and people who come through that study are known, as you, as you say, as termites. Um, and he uh, has a kind of threshold, a minimum IQ that he's looking for, uh, and he's trying to identify people of superior intelligence, and uh, and that's what he does. Um, and you know it's fine and, and well as it goes, but um, as you alluded to before, in that study he famously uh, misses out uh, on uh, two people, uh, uh, William Shockley and uh, Lou Alvarez, who who go on to win the Nobel Prize uh, later. And so they didn't meet his uh, threshold for uh, minimum intelligence to to be classified as as a genius, but they they win the Nobel Prize. <laughs> well, what does that say to you when you hear that story? What do you ha- what do you think about it? Well, uh, you know, I mean, one thing to say is that um, uh, creative capacity uh, and raw intelligence aren't necessarily the same things. Um, you know, when I talk about this, you just look, if you're going to end up being classified as a genius, and genius is, of course, just a label that we uh, we uh, apply to people, and it can mean uh, all kinds of different things. It's not as if genius is a kind of, you know, part of the inherent frab- fabric of the universe, and we just discover it. There are people who are good at things, uh, and we apply this label to them. And usually when people are good at things, and they're good at things that involve uh, thought and creation, um, they're not stupid. <laughs> um, but... Uh, But intelligence isn't the only thing going on. And so, this began the controversy that lasts to this day. What is the interplay of nature and nurture on genius? Does a high IQ make you a genius? And if not, what does? What about creativity? What about that feeling you get when you're in the presence of someone who is extraordinary. What is an IQ test even measuring? What is intelligence? What is genius? And so begins our series. Join me as together we explore genius. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now 
who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution 
for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing. Absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. Now to a young girl who you just know is going places. At four years old, she's already an impressive painter, and she donates many of her works of art to help raise money to help others. ABC7 News anchor Dion Lim got an art lesson from her today. From the moment you meet Juliette Leong, surrounded by her nature-inspired artwork, it's apparent she is not your average four-and-a-half-year-old. I'm never going to sell painting. The mini-member of Mensa has lots of kid-like hobbies, like swimming, martial arts, and telling jokes. Why did the dinosaur cross the road? I don't know. Why? Because the chicken wasn't born yet. But it's her paintings which impress us the most. Her parents say they started as scribbles. This is a local news report in California profiling Juliette. And like everyone who meets Juliet, the reporter spends much of the time just in awe. There's something about being in the presence of a gifted individual, someone who seems to break the rules of what is possible, who does things that are extraordinary, that evokes a response that feels like nothing else. And we call whatever evokes that emotion genius, whether it is the person themselves or the work they produce. It's an undeniable sensation. That's why the local news sent a reporter and a news van and everything else to meet Juliet. It's why I flew across the country to do the same. Juliet has created more than 100 works of art, with nearly a dozen fetching over $4,000 for the Asian donor program. Sell the painting to help people with cancer and find a match. With her mom's help. Juliet received national attention after her mom, Willa, started putting videos of Juliet online on Facebook, YouTube, that sort of thing. They are really fun to watch. For instance, she gives pep talks for kids, which, since Juliet loves to perform, she sings. Some advice I have for other kids are, hold on to your imagination. She also makes these pep talks for adults. Advice to adults. Opinions. (laughs) She says, opinions are never wrong. Can we all just get along? But she sings it, strangely. Also, she plays the violin. She has videos where she explains how cancer drugs work. Today I'll talk about blood cells and cancer cells. My next video, I'll talk about treatment. Blood supplies all our organs and tissues with oxygen and nutrients. She gives math lessons. 
But now we're, I'm going to teach you three-digit multiplication. And, and she has several book reviews. I recommend this to young readers who love, 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 love unicorns. So soon word got around and she was profiled not just on local news, but recently on an episode of Rachel Ray. When I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor, violinist, artist, pianist, policeman, on a cure cancer. Of course you will do all of these things, Julia. Of course you will. Welcome Hi. to our home and our show. Hi. You are Juliet. Hi. This is my husband. Want to say hi, John? This is my husband, John. Hi, how are you? <laughs> you can hear in Rachel Ray's voice just that feeling, that feeling you get in the presence of the extraordinary, of the gifted, of someone who seems to have something more, something special, someone who is doing, as I would learn later when I talk to intelligent researchers, something discontinuous. Now, as the show progresses, we're going to talk to people who study intelligence, who study human reasoning and thought who study IQ and the history of the test, and people who study genius itself, trying to make sense of it from multiple angles. But in the very next episode, we're going to discuss something that is just undeniable, something I felt over and over again, especially in the presence of Juliet. It's the reason we have the word itself, genius. It comes from people in ancient times who, well, we'll get to that in a minute. It's something that her parents could not stop talking about because they, in a way, feel like almost like Clark Kent's parents, like an alien entity entered their lives one day, a person from beyond, a person with something that they could not identify within themselves, how they brought it into the world. After Juliet left to go to camp, I sat down with Jonathan and Willa, her parents, and we opened up a bottle of wine. <laughs> uh, red or white? Uh, if you have red, I'll take red. And I asked them, when did you first notice something special about Juliet? I remember one night, um, she was, I can't remember how, like seven months or something like that. And she always hated sleep. Like sleep, like she'd be happy, super happy for running around. The moment you mention sleep, she throws a huge tantrum. So we're in bed and we're like, don't move, go to sleep. And it was totally dark. And she sang the ABCs. From a to, and we're like, did she just sing all the ABCs all the way from A to Z? We knew she did like, the first <laughs> Do you hear the surprise in their voices? I mean, they were surprising me with these stories, but they were still surprised, eager to share these moments that they were still trying to make sense of. And Willa and Jonathan both said this really did happen that Juliet recited the alphabet to them at seven months old. And it was at that moment they both felt like something otherworldly had appeared in their lives, something beyond comprehension, something special, something spiritual. They both mentioned that quite a bit. That was the feeling. And of course, at the moment, they asked around. They asked other parents what they had experienced at this age with their own children and other things began to stand out. She rolled over months earlier than usual. She took to swimming much earlier than usual. She began taking an interest in numbers and counting much earlier than usual, predicting the patterns of how numbers 
could reach millions and trillions before being introduced to those ideas. And then, one day... Tell, why don't you tell him about the time you're just walking down the street? Oh. Did you ever see the show, the movie Rent, or the play Rent? Sure. Okay, well, the, she starts singing the title to yes. that. Never, never seen it, saw there it, and she's saying the whole thing through. That she sang... <laughs> That we have no idea, and we've done some research trying to backtrack where she could have heard those songs, and we still today have no idea where she heard those songs, but she was able to sing them. 525,600 minutes, 525,000 moments, oh dear. She was walking down the street. One day she just started singing this song, and they had never heard this song before. They had no idea if she had made it up. They didn't know what she was doing. They knew it was full of numbers, which seemed like something she would do, but it seemed more composed. And to this day, they have no idea where she heard this or how she memorized it without them noticing or knowing she had. Events like this started happening much more often the older she grew. And the moment they really, really did commit to this, oh my God, we have a genius child, is when she did something that, I have to admit, I watched it on video. They have it recorded on video. They showed me on their phones. It, it just, it astonishes me even now, remembering it as I tell it to you. This all came out. This is with a marker. She well, just she didn't did, want. She did this. She did yeah. this. These are all. This is all. Every piece of art in here is hers. Wow. The flowers, that that top oh. lightning with the reflection, the violin that she wrote that from the. Uh, we have someone wants to buy that one, but the violin that the black and white painting. She just just she just did it. It was all all the stuffs in her head. All those animals and everything. The, the, the first time she ever drew any of those was right there. The first cow that she ever drew was right there. But, you know, I mean, again, with a marker, not, not traced or no model, no nothing. About her. What he's showing me is a drawing done with a marker of her dad. And it looks just like him. But here's the thing. She did this when she was two years old with just Willa around. Willa gave her a black magic marker a white piece of paper, and Juliet drew from memory her father's face in such detail that anyone looking at it would know who she drew. Everything that's there, you know, like the, all the paintings and everything, there's no models, there's nothing she looked there's nothing that she's copied from, it's all up here. So she sees your face. She drew a, a picture of Willa's mom, the grandma, and she gave it to her. And uh, she said, this is not me, it's, I'm not this fat, right? But she put, she leaves it on the counter at her spa. And everyone comes and says, hey, that looks just like you. <laughs> Even though I had spent the day with Juliet, being continuously astounded by all of her antics, she had a costume that looked like a butterfly she put on at one point, was running around and doing abacus calculations. She had a density experiment on the kitchen counter. She pitted me against her in a math off. It, it, was a, it was a crazy, amazing day. I loved everything about it. But it was something about watching that video on Willa's phone, showing her draw her dad. She recorded it. And I watched it right there. She 
turned her phone on, went to the video, played it for me. Something about watching her draw her dad with that marker for the first time, that was when I truly felt that same mysterious feeling they had felt. And I told them so. And they sort of just paused and took it in, and we had nothing to say for a minute. It was just true and mysterious. And that was when Willa asked me, uh, Do you believe in, like, reincarnation stuff? I don't, but uh, I, I, I doesn't mean I uh, don't enjoy listening and, and learning about it. Tell, tell me, what, tell me what, if I had said yes or no, what, 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 what's, coming, what's the reincarnation? What's the idea that you're about to put forth? Oh. Julie, Juliet, maybe. Because some of the stuff is like, where did she get it from? I mean, I don't, we don't have a belief whether sure. whether we believe it's The, the root of the word genius is the Latin geno genere, uh, which means to generate or to, to father or to beget. Uh, it's, it's a word that shows up in words like genes, right? Um, Once again, this is historian Darren McMahon. And, and it turns out that there's a kind of link there uh, because in, in, in Latin, genius or genius um, was conceived as a kind of guardian spirit uh, that was born with you uh, at creation and watched over you uh, throughout your life. It's the it's the root of, in many ways, our our modern or a more modern idea of a kind of guardian spirit, guardian angel. As McMahon explained, genius originally referred to the god of your birth, some sort of attending spirit among many among billions, that decided it was time to extract your essence from the ether and then bring you into the realm of mortals. Genius comes from the Latin verb gino or genere, gino, genere, however you'd like to pronounce that, which means bring into existence. It's the root of generate and genes and genitals and so on. The Roman playwright Plautus once wrote of regret, He regretted how, when he realized he was dying in his old age as a poor man, that he couldn't go on any more adventures or experience anything new. And he said he had cheated himself, his animus, and his genius. Now, animus means soul, so he was saying he had fallen short of his self, his soul, and the spirit who brought him into the world from across the veil, the space between mortals and those who are more than, the place where gods and spirits attend the matters of the divine. That word genius, even in Roman times, seemed to mean several things. People would sometimes use it to describe their attending spirit, but sometimes they would use it to refer to the divine within themselves, that thing that made them more than animal, but not quite a god. Poets spoke of indulging one's genius, a common phrase at the time which meant to enjoy the good things in life, else your divine spark would dwindle and disappear. That phrase, 
indulge one's genius remained commonplace for about 500 years. Genius was the life force, the divine spark of creation that rested within all human beings. There was even a term they used called the genius loci, the genius of the place. It's the divine spark that inhabits a mountain or a river or sometimes, since you know they're Romans, military bases. Also, they called the marital bed the lectus genialis, because they, like many who followed, believed that genius was passed down from one generation to the next through making babies. But what about the attending spirit that brought you into the world? Wasn't that a genius? A member of the genii, the strange gods that created mortals? How does this work? How do these two things go together? Well, yes, look, these two things were true at the same time. It's just how things work when we're trying to figure out how anything works when we haven't invented science yet. So somewhere in the late 2nd century BCE, the idea of a life force became personified as a life-giving force wielded by a spirit. And so the concept was a bit of both. It was combined the idea of divinity itself, and as the Romans progressed culturally, that Divinity came to be seen as something that a masculine guardian spirit, which both manipulated genius to create humans and bestowed genius as a holy force, passed into them and then it passed from father to child. Yeah, it's a bit confusing and also problematic by modern sensibilities considering only men received genius because men generated children Women had a different spirit. They were called the Juno. And this came from the word Jove, meaning love. And women's attending spirits bestowed vitality, youthfulness, and, confusingly, fertility. The Romans were a bit mixed on how babies got made. But the Juno, similarly, were divine godlike protectors who brought humans into the mortal realm. But they also did so embodying and bestowing feminine traits. Over time, genius came to be believed as a companion spirit of some sort who also gave people their personalities and dispositions. If you were lazy or industrious, that was a genius, a spirit that made you that way thanks to the gifts or lack thereof they bestowed upon you during your making and transit into the world of mortality. And the word ingenium, which means the genius within, came to mean your specific and unique talents. And since each person had a different genius, their own special personal guardian and lifelong spiritual companion, so did each person have distinct strengths, weaknesses, personality, and fate. You could have a good genius or you could have a bad genius or you could have one that could zigzag and go uh, different ways. And so that's really the, um, the, the origin of the word itself. And these ideas had their roots in cultures that predated the Romans. And the Greeks certainly believed very similar things, though they had a slightly different construction of where these gods or spirits existed and how they interacted with us. The Greeks, like most cultures before roughly the 19th century, believed that humans didn't create new ideas, but instead discovered them. Humans discovered 
that which the gods hid around them, and invention was taking inventory of those discoveries. So when geniuses like Socrates appeared, they often wondered where their new ideas came from, their insights, their talents, their concepts, their wisdom. And in the case of Socrates, he claimed he received his challenging ideas from gods no one else had access to, a sort of alternate dimension of beings which the Greeks called the demonia. And as you may recall, this didn't go over so well. The idea that someone was channeling knowledge from an alternate dimension of demons with whom no one else could communicate made the Greeks of the time uneasy. Yeah, I mean, you know, Socrates was famously, uh, you know, um, put to death or asked to commit suicide um, in part because he was seen as corrupting the youth uh, of mm -hmm. Athens uh, and corrupting them with strange religious ideas. And the daimonian in this sense, you know, kind of added to that air that there, he's, he's up to something um, demonic, right? Uh, up to something no good. Um, whether, whether or not Athenians thought that he was polluting their realm with knowledge from another realm, I'm, I'm not so sure of. Okay. Um, but um, It's uh, fun to think but, that way. <laughs> yeah, well, but, but you do point to something interesting in that, because again, this, this special insight, this special inspiration, uh, while it can be uh, um, divine, can also be demonic. It also can be corrupting. Mm. And there's this kind of lurid sense that develops from fairly early on that people who, um, you know, traffic with the gods are potentially dangerous. And the, you know, the, the dark side of this is kind of dark magic or uh, uh, black magic. And uh, there's a side to this as well. And a great example, a modern example of somebody who recognizes these connections and filiations is, is the great German novelist Thomas Mann, um, who was obsessed with the idea of genius, as many uh, Germans were in this period, and who writes his great uh, uh, novel, Dr. Faustus, um, uh, in very much in, 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 in this connection. And he you know, speculates on the kind of dark traffic uh, uh, that um, uh, that develops around Dr. Faustus, who's this great uh, musician and pianist, but who's uh, at the same time kind of divinely uh, possessed or, or demonically possessed. Um, it's not a kind of random association. There's this long-standing um, connection that's drawn between geniuses and their ability to sort of traffic with the with the occult forces of the world and that can um you know lead them to superior knowledge but it can also lead them astray into into the diabolical how did this how do we get from this concept to the idea that a person can be a genius is this something that starts with socrates or is it i mean what is the story going from that to this concept that people might have walked around and being like well that's a very special person that's got something beyond they're more human than human in some way right so i, I begin in the ancient world and the ancients start to, to kind of ask the question how is it that people get superior um abilities right in poetry or in statecraft or or what have you um and Generally speaking, there are two responses to that question. Uh, there's the idea that um, that superior individuals uh, have a, a kind of divine gift uh, that is uh, bestowed to them directly or blown into them. Um, I like to point out that you know our idea of inspiration 
comes from a Latin word, spirare, to blow into. And the idea of inspiration was that you were literally kind of blown into by the breath of the gods. Plato writes about this uh, in, amongst the Greeks in uh, another way too, and, 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 and thinks of poets uh, as people who are possessed by uh, an outside force, a god or a spirit. You mentioned Socrates. Socrates is a great example of this. Socrates was said to have had his own sort of guardian spirit, what um, the Greeks called a, a, a daimon or daimonian, hmm. uh, a little demon. It's the root of our modern term demon and very much analogous to the later uh, Latin concept of a, of a, of a genius or a genius. Um, and that, that guardian spirit in Socrates' case was said to have um, counseled him. And a myth kind of grows up uh, around this after his death um, that um, ascribed his superior intelligence to um, his ability to kind of get divine signals and signs from his his daimonian. So that's one idea that that uh, people of exceptional uh, talent uh, ability um, are able to connect directly with the divine through um, through through mediating spirits. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how many of these ideas are still with us. It, uh, the idea of a mad scientist, the idea of a um, insane artist, the idea of a uh, an evil genius who has plans to take over the world, which is basically the bad guy in every superhero movie. Uh, and then there, there's just the idea of of a, of a of, of Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk or um, a savant musician like like these are st- and and i you hear when people speak of these they often if they're very secular they they have some sort of neurological explanation if they're not they do speak of the divine they do speak this person has a gift that comes from somewhere else it feels like none of these ideas have really changed uh <laughs> if you dig down deep enough I, i'm interested to like in w- what your take is on that like as far as I understand the evolution of the idea has a lot of particulars to it, but I find it odd that some of these archetypes are still just, they're just right there because apparently we're, we're going to always be fascinated by the concept of somebody who is exceptional. Right. Yeah, it is fascinating. I mean, you just gave a wonderful brief for why history matters uh, because, uh, you know, we get, we get locked in these kind of structures that, um, that, uh, that, that structure the way we think. And that association, as you say, between genius and madness or genius and instability or genius and divine possession uh, is very, very old. Um, goes all the way back, as I say, to the ancient world and then gets reinvented at various uh, uh, points. So in the Renaissance, but then again, actually, uh, interestingly, in the 19th century, mm. um, when there's a, a kind of um, materialist science that, that develops uh, around uh, the study of geniuses, uh, but that nonetheless uh, tries to, um, well, I, I give uh, I give the uh, this example of this kind of French science that develops to try to explain Socrates' uh, daimonia. <laughs> you know, what was this thing? Clearly, it couldn't have been a little spirit god. Uh, people are too sophisticated uh, at that point to believe in such things. But what do they do? They develop the whole theory uh, that this was a kind of oral hallucination uh, and that that um, hallucination was a sign of an incipient uh, kind of madness or mental instability, which was part source and part um, 
a correlate of his genius. So the same association between genius and madness is drawn in this 19th century science that I call genealogy, G-E-N-I-O-L-O-G-Y, right? The study of, of, of exceptional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it purports to be materialist and scientist, uh, scientific. Um, and yet it like you said, it just repeats these same associations, right? That that draws links between genius madness and genius and um, instability and the like. We're often drawn to associate genius with this kind of mysterious factor because we precisely because we can't explain it fully yeah see that's what the, that's i think that's what i didn't know that was going to be what was going to fascinate me and i clearly that's what uh has fascinated you too is this it's it's something that's so difficult to to articulate that you can't even define the word i've seen so many different definitions for what genius means mm. but then if i go through history like every era is like well here's a different definition and but it's one of those things like like if it's it's clearly some kind of abstraction that's hard to articulate and because of the which is something that is often external but this is about us this is about human beings it's something that you can compare yourself to it's something that's going to happen in your era in your geographical region it's going to also be peppered all throughout history there going to be figures that are going to be labeled this some of them like good some of them bad some have done very good things some have done very bad things and it i can see why this is a endless fascination for us and also it feels like we'll probably never be able to define it because in the attempt to like quantify it and like put a scientific label on it it's like it's sand through your fingers it it, it doesn't give you any more to go on because uh, i mean am i on the right track with that I think I think you're absolutely on the right track, and that's one of the reasons why, as I try to show in this this kind of science, or what we would call from our perspective now, although it wasn't considered this at the time, the pseudoscience of the 19th and early 20th centuries, why even these scientists, time and time again, end up in the attempt to explain genius scientifically, endowing it with a kind of magic, right? And Galton <laughs> says at one point that you know a genius is one in a million or one in ten million. And think about that. If if you know a population pool only generates uh, a figure like that, uh, one in every ten million, that person becomes this really special creation, a kind of exception to the the normal laws of nature. And this mm. is how people think of geniuses as supermen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or superwomen sometimes. And this is another theme that I uh, talk about at length: the way that genius is gendered male from very early on, and that you know has uh, all kinds of associations and attachments. But um, still. This idea that the genius is a kind of uh, singular force is um, is reproduced uh, in in the very scientific effort that that tries to demystify it, um, which suggests, I think, in, and it seems to me you were pointing in this direction yourself that you know we have an investment in the kind of mysterious side of genius. It's as if we want uh, to believe uh, in. Um, in, in special forces, mm-hmm. in higher powers, even in our, um, you know, in our um, demystified modern world. Will Durant said it was the final religion. There, we want to imagine that we are more than animals in some way. Like we want to imagine that there's something special about us, and things we call people we call geniuses give us that. Right? They give us the gift of saying, "Oh, look, this person's somewhere between whatever this is." 
and whatever whatever is transcendent. Uh, and even a hardcore scientist wants to imagine, like you know, if you if so the the brain is a, is creating consciousness from meat, and there is something emergent and transcendent in that. And then the, then you have someone like Einstein, who can, or someone who, in our modern era, who you're like, aha, see, and there is another level to this. Like, there's a thing that's going to get us onto other planets. There's a we're going to keep evolving and become some sort of, and this person's like maybe five percent there already, and it feels. Uh, thrilling to think that we're more than whatever we are. I think that's that's got to be an internal uh, desire, and that that feeling you get of awe has to be something we've had since since the Greeks uh, and before then. Even uh, shaman and things, I'm sure, were considered in some way like this. Uh, and I I can feel that that why after everything else has been taken away, this would be the final religion because it is the most humanistic thing there is to imagine that we people could be demigods in some way. Right. Right. And we don't want the world to be entirely disenchanted and, and geniuses serve somehow, as you've just said, to, to enchant it for us. I mean, Einstein is a great example in this connection. So is, um, is Isaac Newton. And I, so he's fascinating in the sense that I think um, many people we label as geniuses actually have a really good uh, talent with uh, PR. Uh, and, <laughs> and Newton is no uh, exception here. I mean, he, he, he cultivates his image quite self-consciously. And after his death, he has a kind of group of people who are writing about him and uh, disseminating stories and anecdotes about him. But think about it. It's perfect. What does Newton do? He literally unlocks the grammar of the universe. He reads God's mind. Mm. He's able to translate God's mind into mathematics um, and explain how the universe works. And so for contemporaries, it's as if he's a kind of prophet, right? Who has special knowledge uh, into the way that the uh, universe operates and is able to then communicate that uh, to us. Um, and it does seem this quasi-magical um, saintly power, and it's not coincidental that he's buried in Westminster Abbey with, uh, uh, with the other saints and, and, and poets and the Shakespeare's and so on. I often hear from scientists, and I spend a lot of time interviewing uh, people in STEM, that um, if you think of somebody like, like Newton or Einstein or uh, any of the people who are in the pantheon of scientific uh, saints... The they what they the way they're spoken of is they did go find something that was locked away and hidden, a a mystery and a secret of the universe. They extracted it and then translated it for us mortals to understand. And then the idea is that one day, if we like harness the power of a star and we're able to, to like travel at sublight speeds and create vast galactic civilizations and transcend the flesh into AI and whatever else. Like that would be via the conduit of this genius figure who is somehow between mortal and immortal. And it's still the same construct, it seems. <laughs> yeah, revelation, right? Revealing, re re revealing the divine. I mean, I think these connections are, are there for sure. It's going to be Einstein most of the time. Uh, that's, he's become the, what a genius is. He's like, if, I think if probably if I typed it into Google, his face would be on the first page. Um, it's exactly, exactly it. In fact, I, I quote a couple children's stories in the book where I use, you know, the definition of genius is simply that Einstein. Right? Now, is that because my intuition is that he became a, he became a, 
he was a very smart person who did an incredible thing. E equals MC square is, you know, a huge thing in, a, in the history of the, the human species. But he also did that right when we got like magazines, televisions, photographs. Uh, he was there at the birth, at the birthing also of mass media on a scale we'd never had. And so he was like a, a super celebrity. Uh, and he was one of our Absolutely. first ones. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and he too, like Newton before was good at it. You know, I mean, he was a charming guy and he could, play it um um he looks cool like, uh, exactly he, yeah you have the you know the the one sock off and the uh, the shock of mad hair and everything and but he that's that becomes iconic right i mean it's a uh, uh, it's the image as you say of genius um there's also this association drawn be, uh, between einstein and and then the development of atomic weaponry now um th that's a very loose association in fact it's, it's largely apocryphal but Nonetheless, there's this famous uh, Time magazine uh, cover that uh, I have an image of in the book that shows, you know, uh, the saintly Einstein there, uh, and E equals MC squared, and a mushroom cloud behind him. And again, there's an association between Einstein and the good genius, but nonetheless unlocking the power that can destroy the universe. I mean, and he brought fi it's fire from the gods. Yeah, exactly. It's Promethean, uh, and um, it goes all the way back to that. Again, this association, the geniuses are, they, they're, they're playing with dangerous stuff. And I think we still believe that uh, uh, on some level, right? I mean, the, hmm. the, the smartest people that will bring us uh, AI may, uh, you know, uh, uh, unleash uh, uh, Terminators. Uh, yeah, um, and we keep telling that story. Jurassic Park, uh, Terminator, uh, the and then anything involving atomic weapons, uh who did that? It's the it's it's the a, a mad scientist somewhere who unlocked yeah. some who uncovered something we weren't we weren't ready for. Mortals were not ready for it yet. What is a genius today, and how do we feel about it? And um, we're in a different place with this, and it may be shifting or something. Well, how do you feel about it? Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, on one level, I argue that Einstein is the kind of last genius in a certain type of mold, right? Um, but, you know, the, the more I think about it, I'm not sure that's entirely right, because we do uh, have, you know, the, the, the Bill Gates and uh, the, the kind of modern figures now um, who, who, who play similar roles. Um, and, you know, I think at least in this country, um, and this has been the case. I'm, I mentioned Edison before. There's a marriage between, you know, genius and getting things done in the world and the business place, and you know, the the entrepreneur, uh, the the Silicon Valley visionary um, who you know harnesses um, uh, deep insight to practical know-how and makes a lot of money in the process is the kind of image uh, for the modern genius. Um, and, um, you know, it can, I think, lead to, to some of these same associations that we've talked about uh, already, right? Uh, um, the, the, these kind of figures um, uh, creating the conditions for our uh, liberation, but also our destruction, right? That uh, they're, they're playing with forces that uh, may undo us, but uh, may, as you say, uh, uh, allow us to harness the, the energy of, uh, of stars and travel <laughs> travel the, 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 the galaxies.
geology, geniusology. As McMahon explained, once science, materialism, and naturalism, and the Enlightenment and the Renaissance all began to change the way we made sense of ourselves, it also all began to seek an explanation for genius. A scientific revolution in how we define everything, which contributed to and was a product of our new conception of ourselves as creative forces. We could create things. We didn't just discover them. We didn't find something that was already there. We also could make things that had never been. And if humans can create, if humans can bring into the world things that had never existed until we made them, that not only changed the way we saw ourselves, it demanded from science, from the new science, something new to understand, to make sense of, to pick apart. It added to the mystery of genius. And as so often is the case, in redefining these things, we are really defining them for the first time, quantifying them, putting them under new tools like microscopes and parsing them with new frameworks like genetics. And unfortunately, as we will learn, eugenics. In the next episode, that's where we're headed. The history of attempting to create a science of genius. And with that, we will learn about how the IQ test was invented and how it developed into what we're using it for today. And you will hear from many more experts and geniuses like Juliet. 78 plus 11 minus 39. That's her mom giving her math problems on an abacus. Answer? Answer. I said you're That's mine. <laughs> and this is Juliet challenging me to a math off. Two sheets of paper, identical problems. First person to the end wins. So how does this work? We're trying to beat each other? Is this how they work? Whoever finishes first. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And then you get water balloons. Right. The prize is a water balloon. The prize is a water balloon? Wow, this makes math fun. All right. Let's see you go. Mm. Ready, set, go. Now, of course, Juliet handily defeated me, but it was still fun. Now I'm on the next problem. Oh, oh my. Oh, I'm going <laughs> to... Yeah, you're already beating me. You're doing an incredible job. Wow. I mean, yeah. The competition is who gets to this one the fastest. Uh, you've already beaten me. I mean, I, I, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> Problem. <laughs> <laughs> You're killing me. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. Just do it. Yeah, just no. do that. Okay. Did you say focus? Yeah. Oh wow. I can't. Down. You did it. Fine. Fine. Again. Just <laughs> finish. That's very impressive. How did you how did you learn to do math so incredibly fast and so incredibly well? So just from my brain, I just told you that. Just from your brain? Yes. Okay. When I visited Juliet, she had just had her fifth birthday. 
It was a huge celebration, 150 guests, as she told me several times. What's this right here? Uh, that's just for my party because that, that was celebrating my birthday. When was your birthday? May 16th. And how old are you? I'm five, but my regular birthday is in May 2nd. Mm. And, my, and my party it was in May 16th. Okay. How, what was the party like? 150 people. 150 people? Yes. I don't know 150 people. <laughs> yes, 150 people. Juliet emphasized this quite a bit and showed me all sorts of gifts, some she had not even put together yet or opened in the right way, but she knew kind of what they were. And Juliet, at the party, her parents said, made everyone there feel the way I had when I visited the way we all feel in the presence of that difficult-to-define sensation, that spark that the ancients considered a gift from the divine. Which was fitting, because the whole reason we throw birthday parties is to follow the tradition of, well, the tradition of trying to understand just what that word genius really means. Well, am I wrong to suggest, say um, that maybe the origin of the birthday party is directly connected to the idea of having this genius spirit? Exactly, yeah. The Romans seem to have had this uh, idea of a festum genialia kind of uh, um, celebration uh, of one's birth spirit. This is before saints' days in a, a Christian sense and before birthdays in our modern sense. But um, um, And part of the, the offering that you'd make to a, a god or a spirit like that would be to uh, put out some flowers, perhaps burn incense, a little wine, um, and, and then a cake uh, with a candle. The idea of genius it goes back to the very beginning of our shared drama as people. And the origin of the word genius, well, it goes back to the Romans. We've always needed a term for that feeling we get in the presence of an extraordinary person. Like Juliet. Everyone who visits her feels it. Everyone who meets her uses that placeholder term that we've needed for ages. A word for those of us who seem tapped into something, as if they're closer to the gods than mere mortals. Originally, the word genius described the attending deity that was assigned to you at birth, a member of the genii. They bore witness to the emergence and then watched over your soul, the divine spark, your humanity. But I really like the idea that on the day of your birth, you would hold a ceremony in which you burned a little cake as an offering to your attending deity, sang a ritual hymn, and that is the origin of the birthday party. The Festum Genial, the annual ritual to sacrifice a cake. It all comes from a time when we believed each of us had genius inside of us. It's our first birthday gift. And the wish we make today as we blow out the candles was originally a prayer to the genii, the spirits who bestowed that gift. As you will learn in the rest of this series, just by being human, 
we do each possess a gift, something that is given to us at birth. And since genius comes in many forms, the version that resides within you may be something you've yet to discover. More on that, and so much more, as we continue exploring genius. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can hear the entire series over at Himalaya, and there's a link in the show notes in your podcast player to go hear the rest. And about a year or so from now, there will be a book that goes so much farther into this topic than I could go when I was making that series. I really look forward to sharing all that with you. That is everything I have for this particular episode. You can find my book, How Minds Change, wherever they put books on shelves and ship them in trucks. Details are at davidmcraney.com, and I have all that in the show notes as well right there in your podcast player. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher or SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or YouAreNotSoSmart.com. Follow me on Twitter. I know it's called something else now, but not for me. At David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. On all the other social stuff, I'm at David McCraney. We're also over on Facebook slash YouAreNotSoSmart. And if you'd like to support this operation, go to Patreon.com slash YouAreNotSoSmart. Pitching in any amount will get you the show ad-free. But the higher amounts will get you posters and t-shirts and signed books and other surprise things. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. And the best way to support this show is just tell people about it. If there's a particular episode you really liked, share it and tell people why you like it. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.